Father, I ask this morning that you would use this text and your spirit to open our eyes so that we can see what you want us to see. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1937, Thomas Kelly stood before the faculty of Harvard University to defend his PhD dissertation. That moment had been a long time in the making. It started out many years ago when he was an undergraduate student at Haverford College near Philadelphia. Even though he graduated with a chemistry degree, he decided to pursue philosophy. He received his first PhD in philosophy from Hartford Theological Seminary. He went on to become a professor at Earlham College, Wellesley College of Massachusetts, the University of Hawaii, and finally his alma mater, Haverford. By the time he became a professor at Haverford, he was 44 years old. He had completed his PhD work, his classwork was complete, his dissertation was even published. The only thing remaining was the oral defense of his dissertation. But as Thomas Kelly entered the room to defend his dissertation, his mind went blank. The examining faculty failed him. It was the absolute worst nightmare for an academic. Thomas Kelly was never allowed a second chance, and he never received his PhD from Harvard. For weeks, he was inconsolable. No matter what friends and families did or said, nothing helped. Kelly had been a Christian his whole life and had a strong faith in God. But something happened later that year that was unlike anything he had experienced before. His son recounts what happened. There's no exact record of what happened in the following weeks, but it is certain that something during the months of November or December 1937, a change was wrought within the very foundation of his soul. Quoting his dad, he goes on to say, I was shaken by the experience of divine presence, something I did not seek, but that sought me. His son continues, stripped of his defenses and human self-justification, he found for the first time a readiness to accept the outright gift of God's love, and he responded with unlimited commitment to that leading. Thomas Kelly only lived for three more years. But those three years were unlike anything he had experienced before. His whole life was transformed, and he would say time and again, I have literally been melted down by the love of God. When I hear his story, I'm struck that here is a man who knew there was nothing he could do for God. There was nothing he could give God, but there was everything that God could give him. Through a painful, sobering experience, his eyes were open to the fact that he was much more frail than he thought. The impressive titles and accomplishments meant little. God opened his eyes to the fact that he was blind, that he was helpless in the things that mattered. And when he realized that, everything changed. 
It's my prayer this morning that God will show us how blind we are, how incapable we are of directing our own path, how helpless and totally dependent we are on him, on Jesus to give us life and sight, a gift that we can in no way earn or pay back, a gift we can only receive. In this passage from John 9, Jesus shows us it isn't the worst thing in the world to be blind as long as we recognize that we're blind. Would you open up your Bibles to John 9 and either keep your Bible open there or, or sandwich a finger in it? We're going to refer back to this passage. There are at least three sets of characters in this passage who are blind. And each of them will teach us something different. As we look at these three sets of characters, we're going to ask, how is their blindness present in our lives? And how does that blindness keep us from receiving the gift that God has for us? Besides the blind man that is healed, the first group of blind characters we encounter are the disciples. In verses 1 and 2, we see that Jesus and his disciples come upon a man who's been blind since the time he was born. And wanting to learn from their masters, the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, is this man blind because of his sin? Or is he blind because of his parents' sin? They knew he was being punished for someone's sin. The only question was, whose sin? The disciples were blind to the fact that God was not punishing this man for anybody's sin. He says to them in verse 3, No, you're missing the whole point. This isn't how God works. God isn't doing this because of anyone's sin. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Our reaction might be, Right on, Jesus. I can't believe anybody would think that way. What a crazy thing to think. The thought that God punishes people for their sin, physically afflicting them. That's ridiculous. But I know that I often fall for a related fallacy. I think it's easy to get caught in the trap of believing that God has given me such a good life because I'm so righteous. The reason I have a good intellect and good health and a good job is because God has blessed my righteousness. And if we're not careful, we can kind of get caught up in this thinking that we have a racket going on with God. That as long as we're good people... He, deser- he owes it to us to give us a good life. But when we think that, we're just as blind as the disciples were. And Jesus says to us, you don't get it. Every good thing you have is a gift. You did nothing to earn it or deserve it. God just gave it to you. The first thing we learn from the disciples' blindness is that the quality of our life, good or bad, is not a reflection of our piety. The second thing we learn from the disciples' blindness is that if there are challenges in our lives beyond our control, it may be that God will use those things in an act of severe mercy to reveal his work in our lives, a work and a gift that we would never receive any other way. 
Look at the second half of verse 3 with me again. Jesus said, He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. And for a long time, I wasn't sure what to make of this verse. When I read it, it almost sounded like God was using people, afflicting them, and then he was going to come in and save the day as a way to, to stroke his ego and to get attention for himself. But now I see that verse in a different way. If putting something difficult into our lives is the only way to reveal God's work in our lives, if that's the only way to get us to understand what God wants us to give us, is that such a bad thing? No one would have said that Thomas Kelly had a bad life. He had a pretty good life. He had a job that was fulfilling and paid a good salary. He was highly respected. From all accounts, he had a a happy and vibrant family life. There are many people in the world who would gladly trade their life for that one. But Thomas Kelly never understood the gift God had for him until he was struck blind at the dissertation defense. And given the zest for life he had after that encounter with God, I think it's safe to say that he wouldn't trade that experience for a PhD at any Ivy League school. It's shocking that in this passage, the person with the best eyesight is the one who starts out blind, who has never seen until this day. He understood the gift God wanted to give him, and he would not have understood it unless he had been blind. From the disciples' blindness, we learn that God doesn't punish sin with physical illness. And we also learn that sometimes God uses life circumstances that we would never ask for in order to reveal his work in us. As we continue in the story, the next set of blind characters we meet are some of this man's neighbors. After Jesus teaches the disciples, he, he spits into the dirt and starts making a paste with his saliva and the dirt, and he puts it on the man's eyes and sends him away to wash, and the man comes back seen. You know, I always thought that if you were in the presence of a, a bona fide miracle, you know, not a, a televangelist miracle, but a bona fide miracle, it'd be so obvious There'd be on neon lights and fireworks, and it'd be clear to everyone. But apparently not. Look at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. How is it? That they could not see. I think there's two reasons. The first is is very understandable. Nothing like this had ever happened in the history of the world. Even in the Old Testament, there is no account of a person blind from birth being given sight. God is doing a new thing. And sometimes it's hard to recognize a new thing. It's hard to come to grips with a new thing. But I think there's a second reason why it was hard for some of these neighbors to to see this amazing thing that had happened. They walked by him at least once 
a day, if not more. But it seems that even though they had walked by him every day, that they wouldn't be able to pick him out of a police lineup. You know, how is that? Unless they were so preoccupied with what they were doing that they never paid enough attention to the people around them and the things that God was doing in their life. When I look at these these characters and see their blindness, that's what I resonate with. Am I too busy to see what God is doing in the lives around me? The third group of blind people is the Pharisees. The elite, scholarly, religious leaders who always knew the answer. They were the people you went to when you had a question about God. And so these neighbors, confused and bewildered, bring this man to the Pharisees to investigate what happened. And the irony is, these Pharisees are so blind that God sends a once blind man who cannot read, who has never read the scriptures, to preach to them, to preach to these elite preachers. The blind man explains what happened. They send him away. They send for his parents. They question his parents. They send the parents away. And then they bring back the man. And here's what we read in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind. And they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And then it gets really exciting. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to the one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. And then let's skip to verse 39. Jesus reconnects with the blind man and he said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sinned. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. So what does the blindness of the Pharisees teach us? It's certainly a reminder that the more impressive our resume, the more impressive our position or education, the greater danger that those things become a barrier for us to see how much we need God. Kent Hughes says, The self-satisfied attitude of we see is deadly. We comfort ourselves in our ability to see the sin of the world. We see that Jesus Christ is the answer. We see moral problems. We see the ethical answers. We focus on what we think we see, but we never really see in our hearts. Charles Spurgeon said, It is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It isn't our weakness that hinders Christ. It is our strength. 
It is not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back his hand. This certainly isn't what we're used to. Admitting our weaknesses. We're used to putting our best foot forward. We're encouraged to pump ourselves up with positive talk so that in interviews and at the workplace and at school, we'll shine like a star. So why would anyone ever want to admit that they are so weak that they need God to clean up the mess of their lives? Precisely because it is the only way to accept Jesus' gift of forgiving our sins and the only way that we can spend eternity with him. Dr. Stephen Kello points out that, that many people would even question whether that's a desirable thing to go to heaven when you die. He says if you, you walk down the street and say, would you like to spend eternity in heaven? A very realistic response might be, mm, I don't know. But if you describe heaven from a biblically informed point of view and instead ask, would you like to live in a land where cancer has been eradicated? Would you like to live in a land where bombs and guns have been abolished? Where corruption and greed do not exist? Where friendship and care and cooperation and community are everywhere? Where natural beauty is flourishing? Would you like to live there? I think most people would say, I'd love to live there. That's the door Jesus is opening for us. And the irony is, it's not what we're used to. We're used to working and getting rewards. We work, we get a salary. We work harder, we get a bonus. We work hard, we get good grades. There's a quid pro quo. But here's this crazy thing that Jesus just wants to give us. And we can't do anything to earn it. And it's only when we come to the realization that we're blind and we have nothing to offer God that we can receive that gift. So if you sense this morning that God is showing you how blind you are, either through this text or through your life circumstances, don't run away from that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the work that you did in this blind man's life. I thank you for the work that you did in Thomas Kelly's life. And I pray that you would do the work that you need to do in our lives to bring us to the realization that we are blind and we need Jesus to be our guide, to give us sight, and to be our Savior. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.